Please remain standing now as we read God's word together, these words from the Gospel of Matthew. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. For the last several weeks, we've been talking about the wonders of Christmas, and we've been talking about the several wonders uh, throughout the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And uh, today we talk about the wonder of a promise, and, and promises are really difficult. Right? Promises are really difficult because there's always that time. There's always that moment whenever we believed we had a promise. We believed we had something that should have been delivered and it was not. And this makes promises extraordinarily difficult to comprehend. As I said, we've been talking for several weeks about the wonder of Christmas, and uh, if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. It might help guide you uh, through this conversation that we have. And uh, Last week, we talked about the wonders of a name. Uh, we, we learned that the name Jesus actually comes from the Greek translation uh, of the name uh, Joshua, uh, which means God saves. Uh, the wonder of Jesus' name was that God would save the entire world through the person, through the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, that was the wonder of, of the name that we learned about last week. Uh, that Jesus is a Greek translation of the name Joshua, which means God saves. Uh, we were also encouraged last week uh, to say yes to our new name. Yes to our new name, Christian, which means little Christ or, or Christ follower. And that, that if we have professed the Christian faith, if we have been baptized, we uh, no longer accept our own name, but also the name of Christian, which means Christ follower. Last week we were challenged to accept that, to go forth in the world and believe that we are followers of Christ and accept that name for ourselves. And this week we talk about promises, and, and as I said, promises are difficult to comprehend, they're difficult to understand. Um, and it almost seems that throughout our entire life we've been taught to not believe promises. It, it seems like throughout our entire life we've been taught to not believe promises. I don't know if you remember when you were a kid, and, and when you were a kid it seemed like everybody made promises, right? Every kid made promises uh, that, that you would constantly make one because you knew that if you ever wanted to get out of a promise, all you had to do was cross your fingers, right? Like this was like the magical thing that you had to do to, to get out of a promise, and, and, and you could promise anything to anyone, and all you had to do was cross your finger, and then you didn't have to do it. Right? And so there was this thing as a kid that anytime somebody promised you something, you were taught almost initially not to believe it, to not believe that they were going to deliver on that thing. And then something happened when we got older. Something happened when we got older that, that, that kind of less promises get made, and, and, and we almost are still trained not to believe these promises that we receive. That it gets to the point where we start to understand that, that people have a very limited control Right, that, that all of us have a very limited control in our surroundings. So anytime we promise something to somebody, there are so many things in that promise that we cannot control. That, that maybe as a kid you started to understand that, that maybe an adult would promise you something or you believed that an adult should have been there for you and they weren't and how difficult that was. And how maybe that affected you as you, as you grew older. 
Or maybe now as an adult, you understand that, that promises are very difficult to, to deliver on because there are so many things outside of our control. And, and whatever the reason is, we seem to have become desensitized to promises. We become desensitized to promises. We simply don't believe them anymore. We don't believe them. We've almost gotten inundated with all these promises. We've become so desensitized to these promises. We get inundated with all of these promises that happen over and over and over again, and we simply just stop believing them. What we also start to understand is that a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. A promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And maybe there's been some people in your life who haven't delivered on promises before, and they still make promises, and you've started to you know, just not believe them anymore. Or maybe there's somebody in your life who has just always been there who has been consistent. And even then it's difficult because we know that that person does have a very limited control of their surroundings. That it's still difficult to believe in those promises. That in our lives, there are some promises that we should believe and there are some promises that we should be wary of. There are some promises that that we should be wary of. We have kind of a list of them here. Um, One of them is this, I will pay you back. Right? Have you heard this promise uh, before? It doesn't always get delivered on. Right? This promise, I will pay you back. Uh, maybe we've learned at this point that you know, uh, money uh, given to, to loan to friends or, or family really should just be considered a gift. Right? Anytime we do that, in that way, you know, if they give the money back, if they pay us back, great. If not, we consider it a gift in the first place. Right? That we should be wary of the promise, I will pay you back. Or may, maybe you've heard this one. It won't be like last time. Maybe, maybe you've heard that. Maybe just, it won't be like last time, I promise. Uh, what we begin to understand is that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, right? The best way to tell a way in which somebody will operate in the future is to look at the way in which they operated in the past. Now, now we as Christians believe in redemption. We believe that, that Christ has the power to, to change us, to redeem our past actions, well, we know that the easiest thing for somebody to do in the future is what they've always done. And so this promise that, that it won't be like last time is a very difficult promise to comprehend. It's a very difficult promise to trust in because the best predictor of future behavior is what has happened in the past. Or, or maybe you've heard this promise, I won't tell anyone. Have you heard this? Maybe you had a secret and you were sworn to secrecy, and then what did you do but go and tell your friend, and the first thing that you said was, don't tell anybody, right? Right? Don't tell anybody. I wasn't supposed to tell anyone, and and now I'm telling you, but it has to stop at you, right? Somehow we think that's just going to magically work, that, that, you know, if we break the promise that we gave to somebody else, that person will surely keep the promise to me, right? This, This promise we should be wary of, this I won't tell anyone, that there are promises out there in our lives that we really just become wary of. We become desensitized because we've had so many in our lives that are hard to trust. And then we hear that God has a promise for us. We hear that God has a promise for us, and what happens is we lump God's promise in with all the rest. We hear that God has a promise for us, and, and we think, you know, that's, that's, that's a good idea. You know, the sentiment is really nice. You know, that would be swell, but... 
What about all of these other promises? What about all of these other things in which someone couldn't deliver? And we take the promise that God has for us and we lump it in with all of the rest. I wonder if this is what Joseph started to understand when he heard this word from the angel. We we read about Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew, and and Matthew's Gospel tells the story of the birth of Jesus from Joseph's point of view. And, And in Joseph's point of view, Joseph is engaged to Mary when she becomes pregnant. Joseph is engaged to Mary when she becomes pregnant, and if we read the book of Deuteronomy, we start to understand that any woman who is engaged, any woman who is engaged and then becomes pregnant before she is actually married, can be stoned to death. That Joseph has this fiance, this woman who who then becomes pregnant, and, 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 and they're not wed yet, and she could receive the death penalty in their time, and, and keeping Mary around is now a liability, and so he plans to dismiss her quietly. He, he plans to, to, to send her in the dead of night so that no one will find out. Because Joseph is afraid. He knows what might happen to Mary if she stays around. She has now become a liability, and so he plans to dismiss her quietly. He makes all of these plans and preparations, and then we come to the text that we read just a little while ago. That when Joseph had resolved to dismiss Mary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, or Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. God is with us. That the angel quotes the prophet Isaiah to Joseph. He says, all of this is happening because the prophets had spoken about it, because the prophets had promised that that God would deliver on this. All of this is happening because of the promise that God made back then. All of this is happening because God promised it. And I wonder if in that moment, Joseph began to understand what the prophets meant. Because we know that that Jesus, the Messiah, was spoken about by the prophets, but when we start to actually read them, when we start to read the Old Testament, we start to understand that it, that it was going to be really difficult to actually understand what this Messiah would actually do. That by the time of Jesus, there were many different opinions about what the Messiah would do when he arrived. There were many different ideas and understandings of what this Messiah, this anointed one, would do. That some people thought he was going to be a military ruler, that he was going to lead this military revolt over the Roman government. Some thought that he might even be royalty, that he would rule as a king. Nobody thought that he would be born of an unwed mother in a manger, that there would be no room for him. 
And Joseph receives this word from the angel, saying that all of this has been promised. And I wonder if in that moment he began to understand the entire Old Testament, his entire Bible of what he knew in that time. I wonder if he began to understand all the promises that God had made in the past. All of these promises as far back as the time of Moses. In the book of Exodus, we read about the story of Moses. We read about this person who, in order to escape death, his mother put him in a basket and sent him down the river. That he was picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter and raised as royalty. Raised as royalty until he saw a slave master beating one of his fellow Hebrews. He saw a slave master beating his fellow Hebrews, and so he killed the slave master and fled to Midian. And there he was a poor rancher that he, 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 he watched a flock of sheep for his entire life. And it was there that God meets him. It was there that God calls him to go back to Egypt to free his people out of the hands of slavery. And God delivers this speech from a burning bush and this beautiful speech in which God says that he has finally heard the cry of his people, that all the slavery that they have gone through, all the pain and suffering, that God is ready to stop it. God is ready to stop it and to use Moses to do this. God is ready to do all of these great and powerful things through Moses. And Moses responds in this way in the book of Exodus He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. Doesn't really answer the question, does it? Because Moses' question is about his own strength and ability. Moses asks, well, who am I that I can go to Pharaoh? Who am I, this poor rancher, this ex-Egyptian, this person who has hated and feared in my own town, in my own home? Who am I to go back to Pharaoh to tell him to let these people go? Who am I to do this thing? And God says, I am with you. Moses said, I have no strength and power and ability to do this thing. And God says, it doesn't matter. God said, it doesn't matter because I am with you. That God's promise is his presence. As far back into the time of Genesis and Exodus, God promised his presence. God promised to be there. To be with his people. And God delivers that still today. Here's what we know about the presence of God, that God's presence moved from with Moses. God went with Moses in the book of Exodus to go free the, Egyptian, uh, to go free the Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery. And they wandered in the desert until finally they arrive at the promised land, and there they built the temple, a place that they believed God actually dwelt, that God was seated on the Holy of Holies, that God is here. This is God's presence to us. 
And so God's presence moves from with Moses to the temple and then to Jesus. To, to Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. God's presence was in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That is who Jesus was. And then before Jesus left, he told the disciples that he would send an advocate, that, that he would send the Holy Spirit, that, that God's presence is now with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That God is here. And that is good news, that now we can have this expectation that God will always be with us. God will always be with us. And there is this temptation anytime we are going through trouble. Anytime that we are going through trials or sickness or pain or difficulty, anytime we are going through these things, there's always this temptation to hope that God will just take us out of it. That God will stop this pain, this suffering, anything that is happening that's bad to us. We want God to immediately stop it. And that may happen, but that's not what God promised. God promised that he would be there with us. God promised through the person of Jesus Christ that he knows what we're going through. That Jesus had loved others and had them betray him. That Jesus had experienced pain and suffering in his own life. Jesus knew what it was like, and so God knows what it is like, and so God is with us. That was God's promise, and that is what we can expect, that God will always be there. And here's the thing. If we expect God to be with us, others should expect us to be with them. That if we believe that God came in the person of Jesus Christ, to be with those who were cast out, those who were left out, then those people who are in our world today, who are the least and the lost, those people should expect us to be with them. Because it's what God chose to do when he came in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we, as Christians, as little Christs, as followers of Jesus, should be there with those people who need us most. It's what Jesus spent his entire life doing. Being with those who needed him. We read about Jesus' calling Matthew. And the most, most ludicrous thing about Jesus calling Matthew is that Matthew was a tax collector. He was a tax collector. He worked for the Roman government and collected taxes from people. And he collected more than he should so that he could keep the rest for himself. And he was hated. He, he was hated by every religious person in his time, and Jesus calls him to follow him. We read about it in Matthew's gospel, and uh, Jesus was walking along, and he called a man named Matthew, and, and sitting at a tax booth, and he said, come follow me, and he got up and he followed him. And Jesus sat at dinner in the man's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, Jesus, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In, in the CEB, in the Common English Bible, Jesus says, The healthy don't need doctors. The sick do. The healthy don't need doctors, the sick do. That, that a church should be viewed as a hospital. 
It should be viewed as a doctor's office. And what happens many times in churches, what happens many times in churches is that we get people who wander in from all walks of life. People who walk in from all walks of life, and sometimes we get frustrated that they haven't got it all figured out yet. And that would be like a doctor or a nurse getting upset that someone who had sick had come into a hospital. That this is a place where people can receive healing. This is a place where sick people come to be made well. By the power of Jesus Christ, people come here to be made well, and we should rejoice every time that it happens. And so my hope and my prayer for you this week is that we would believe that God is with us, and if God is with us, we should be with others. Especially be with those who who need us most. Be with those who need us most. And there are going to be some things that are going to follow from this. That one is we should understand those we want to be with. We should be able to empathize, know what it is like, experience the same things that they are experiencing. And this is going to be hard. Because here's the truth, people who need help are the hardest people to help. Right? Maybe you've experienced this, that the people who need help are the hardest people to help, or if it was easy, they would have already done it. If they could have done it on their own, they would have already done it, and so we shouldn't be frustrated that someone who is sick is still sick. That we should be empowered to be with them, understand what it is like, empathize with them, walk through their life with them, because God is with us. We should be God's presence to others. And we should understand those we want to be with and that we would be empowered not to be above them, but to be with them. That something happened in Jesus Christ. Something happened when, when God chose to come in the form of Jesus Christ, that, that God stopped being just up there. That throughout the entire Old Testament, we read about God being up there, and there was this fear that God was always mad at us. There was this fear that, that we should be doing something, we should be trying to work really hard to get God's approval because God is up there. And then when God came in Jesus Christ, Christ, God stopped being just up there, and God continued to be up there and with us. That God knows what it is like to be us. And because of that, we should be with others. That we wouldn't look down on them. We wouldn't be condescending that we would walk through their life with them. Because the people who need help are the hardest people to help. And friends, that's good news to us. Because at one point, we were the hardest people to help. At one point in our life, we were sick. And we were made well through the power of Jesus Christ. And so now we are called to be with others. There's a story of Job in the Old Testament, and 
And in the first couple of chapters, this person, Job, who was one of the most wealthiest people in his entire country, he had everything. He had livestock and crop. He had many children. All of this was viewed as a blessing from God. And in the first couple of chapters in the book of Job, he loses everything. All within several seconds of themselves. Job loses his livestock to marauders, he loses his crop to famine, and he loses his children in a natural disaster. And then on top of all of this, Job develops this attack on his health, these these boils and sores all over his entire body. Then in the midst of his mourning, he, he, he strips his clothes and he throws ashes on his head, all to represent this mourning that he's experiencing. And to help with the pain of the sores, he sits on a pile of potsherds and and uses the broken pottery to scrape the boils off of his body. And in the midst of of the worst pain that Job has ever experienced, and in the midst of the worst pain that Job has ever experienced, his three friends come to his aid. We read about how they come to him. They said these three friends saw Job from a distance, and they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes, and they threw dust upon their heads. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. That Job's friends come to him. And the first thing they do is not correct him. It's not look down on him. What they knew is that the greatest thing that they could ever offer. Friends, the greatest thing the greatest thing that we could ever give, the the best gift that we can give anyone in this world is our presence. My hope and my prayer for you is that we would know that God is here. God is with us through the miracle, through the birth of Jesus Christ, God is with us. And because of that, we are called to be with others.